open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. MIGS, Microinvasive Glaucoma Surgery. It's really sparked a revolution in the glaucoma space, and it continues to evolve and disrupt the ways in which the condition is treated. So, there's no better place to begin a discussion on this approach than with Dr. Ike Ahmed, a pioneer in the MIGS movement. We've been working on MIGS you know, over 10 years, and, and we've come to the point now where we actually, I think, have had a lot of success on the ground now, thanks to the availability of devices like the iStent and, and newer devices. Later, I'll speak to another MIGS leader, Dr. John Birdall, about his involvement in the evolution of this category. It's made a real difference in how we take care of patients. And for me, it is um, the thing that I'm most excited about that's happened over the last, you know, uh, five years or since I've been in my career. Listen in, it's going to be a great episode. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is supported by Elevro from Alcon. Today I have Ike Ahmed with me, and um, it's kind of like talking to a legend, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, Ike Ahmed, and, um, you know, he wouldn't say that about himself, obviously, uh, he's such a humble guy, but uh, everyone who knows Ike or has heard him speak or has got a chance to watch him operate uh, would say this guy's just on the next level, and so Ike, with that being said, man, thank you so much for taking a, a small slice of your evening and uh, talking to me about where MIGS, um, where we find ourselves with MIGS, where, where it's at, where it's going, and maybe where we, we fit the different tools that are coming out into our tool bag. So uh, thanks so much for taking a little bit of time to talk to us tonight. No, thank you, Gary, and it's great to be here. And I mean, I thank you for putting together this series. I mean, one of the, one of the great things we do in, in our professional life is work with great people and be able to put our minds together, think about new plans for our patients and innovate. And I mean, this is what it's about. So just like what, you know, working together with you and others, uh, it's been a great experience. So if I can share something to, uh, to the group and the audience, I'm happy to do that. So thanks for having me here, Gary. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, the iStent is now a device that, it, that really, I feel like has found its place in, in the marketplace, um, with comprehensive ophthalmologists, uh, cataract surgeons embracing it. Uh, patients seem to be getting good results, maybe even results that are better than uh, what we initially thought uh, in the FDA trial. Uh, at least that's what I'm kind of hearing word on the street. So as, as iStent kind of came in the door and opened up this channel, um, where do you see uh, the current state of things with iStent? And then walk me through your thoughts on some of the other devices uh, that are going uh, to be coming out hopefully in the near future, such as the SciPass, which will be, I guess, now uh, developed through Alcon, and then the Zen, uh, which is uh, an Allergan uh, acquisition. Yeah, well, Gary, it's, it's really been an amazing you know, transition as we move toward interventional glaucoma, and, and this is kind of where MIGS and iStance and these other devices fit really, really well, and I think we're still kind of going through that period of learning as far as understanding what roles these have. You know, we've been working on MIGS, you know, over 10 years, and, and we've come to the point now where we actually, I think, have had a lot of success on the ground now, thanks to the availability of devices like the iStent and, and newer devices. It's also created a bit of a crowded market now, where we see a lot of new devices coming on the, on, on, on the horizon or here, and certainly it does give us excitement, but also, I think, adds some element of uncertainty as far as where they fit. I, I think a couple things on MIGS, I think what we've realized is that we've taken glaucoma surgery which has traditionally been, you know, a last resort and a high-risk procedure, although albeit pretty profound uh, with pressure lowering, and moved it into a procedure that is very safe, that can be done uh, with cataract surgery, um, that the recovery and the, and the safety, you know, approaches out of the cataract surgery level. So it's really allowed us to really open the door 
to a whole generation of patients that otherwise wouldn't be candidates for intervention. I think that's probably the biggest thing I think that we've seen is the indications have changed as far as you know moving into the surgical space in glaucoma. So, uh, and iStand certainly led the way with you know the first MIGS device being approved in the U.S. and a device really which has the ultimate safety value being in the in the canal. Uh, when we look at the canal, I like to kind of look at things both stenting as well as cutting techniques as well as ablative techniques. And whether it's trabectome with ablation or whether it's cutting techniques like goniotomy techniques, and, and now we see again a variety of devices. Like the uh, like the hook dual blade from New World, like the Visco and Trad 360 procedures, and like the uh, you know ab internal GAT procedure and the ABIC, the ab internal canalplast procedures. All these procedures essentially are enhancing flow through the, of course, you know, natural drainage system. And I think they all have a great value of safety. And I think there are going to be some differences we're going to start seeing, I'm sure, with efficacy and perhaps some of the safety parts and other things. But I think it's still early to know those differences. But I think I think the results that we've seen with the numbers, and the numbers speak for themselves, is that I think that when surgeons see a patient with going to cataract surgery that has glaucoma or has glaucoma medications, that we take the opportunity to why not treat with a procedure like MIGS that can get them on less medications or off medications at a higher propensity than doing cataract surgery alone. So that's the first thing I think with MIGS is I think that surgeons are becoming comfortable understanding that the role of MIGS specifically with the cataract patient. And we'll talk later perhaps, but that certainly is, I think, not the end of MIGS. I mean, MIGS is certainly, you know, much bigger than that. I think that's where we're excited to see where the market goes with other devices and also standalone devices as well. So I, I think, you know, I, you know, I think that's what I would say as far as MIGS and iStance. And, you know, and, and you mentioned some other procedures. I'm happy to kind of talk about maybe where we're going with other procedures if, if, if you allow me to, Gary, if you'd like me to move into that. Well, let's talk, let's stay, let's stay where we're at right now because you brought up some interesting points. Um, you know, it seems like the older surgeries, we really had a procedure that was highly efficacious and, and, and many times overly efficacious. You know, you really dropped the, the pressure maybe even beyond where you needed it. But the safety profile was, you know, really not what we wanted. And that's why, as a cataract guy, I was really happy to always just send anyone that I felt like needed a trab or a tube, um, some higher level of intervention. I was happy to send those patients on to, you know, my, my favorite glaucoma specialist. Um, but now it seems like that you know, maybe what we're trying to do is we're maybe changing the balance point a little bit. We're increasing safety. And in some ways, you know, I think you can make the argument that the efficacy of these procedures it obviously is not quite as good as a, as a shunt, but the, the people that we're treating with these don't necessarily need that pressure reduction all the way down to what a, what a trab or a tube would, would provide. So in those cases, I think we're, we're trying to match the patient population to the efficacy of the procedure while maintaining a high level of safety. Does that, does that resonate? Yeah, and I think I think you said it very well, Gary. That I think the mistake sometimes we make, and I know in, in our glaucoma circles we have these debates, is trying to compare these procedures to the quote unquote gold standard, which is trabeculectomy. But like you said, it's a different patient population we're trying to treat here, and I think that's why it's important to differentiate that when we talk about procedures, we look at the risk, the reward, and the effort, and and these procedures truly fit a different level. Now, I think one of the one of the weaknesses I think of these procedures, as you mentioned, has been questions of efficacy. And the FDA trial, for example, with the eye stent was not a very, you know, significant big difference. It was significant, mind statistically, but it was not as much as perhaps we were expecting to get compared to FACO alone, which of course does lower pressure. I think one thing we've realized, I think, that as we've gotten better and more proficient with the procedure, and we've, like, for example, tapping into the right episcleral veins, 
targeting the procedures to the right place, putting in more than one, particularly outside the U.S., for example, I think we're seeing we're getting more efficacy. And I think just like we've seen with other procedures, like even FACO and, and VR surgery and, and refractive surgery, that if we hung our hat on the first experience that people had with these procedures, we wouldn't be where we're at today. It's, it's really thanks to the many surgeons that are evolving with the procedure that are learning to maximize the efficacy, picking the right patients that are important that we're really finding a sweet spot. And I think we're finding a really good sweet spot, again, because of the safety value. And, and I'm, I am very convinced, and I'm looking at our data and others' data, that these procedures do work. They do lower pressure, but they're not just simply go point and shoot randomly at anybody and expect them to work as well as planning carefully and the art of the surgery that's important in that. So I think that's the, that's the message I think I'd like to also add to that. And, and again, understanding that there's a different niche, a different patient population that we're looking at. Like you said, Gary, these are patients that don't need low targets, the patients that we're looking at getting off medications. Medications and compliance is a big issue. We don't really understand well. We don't really recognize it enough. And it's, yet it has a bearing on progression, as we've seen in some recent studies. So that's the kind of target we're looking at. And again, it's really a patient population that is well-suited amongst a comprehensive cataract surgeon. I, I, I'm really happy. Uh, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm really happy that I think glaucoma truly is something that is part of most comprehensive ophthalmologists' practices, right? I mean, right. folks out there that do comprehensive ophthalmology, up to 30 40% of their patients that walk in have glaucoma. So no better person to treat those patients than, the, than, they're, than they're treating ophthalmologists. Now there are tools now that allow them to do that. And believe me, there'll be still enough business for the glaucoma <laughs> guys because we still need patients who need low targets who are going to need to have surgery and need extra care. Right. So with that being said, that's a perfect segue into sort of the next level of MIGs. And, and as we've stated, you know, the goal of, of putting in an eye stent is not necessarily as a, uh, as a procedure to take the place of a TRAB. Um, as we said, this is really for, for those mild to moderate patients who were trying to get off maybe a med, maybe, maybe another med, or just increase uh, their compliance overall with, a, with an overall lower pressure. But walk me through the devices that you see on the horizon that may have the chance of actually supplanting TRAB or TUBE for those patients who are past the mild stage, maybe more in the moderate phase, maybe in the severe phase, or patients who simply are just very non-compliant and you see progression and you're worried about them. You know, those are the patients who, you know, I, maybe they're not all the way cupped out, but you see patients progressing and they're not taking their meds. You know, those are patients I worry about. Um, so walk me through the next maybe level of treatment or level of care, which in my mind, I, I guess would be going to the supracritical space and looking at a pass or maybe even with the um, procedure that Allergan is developing uh, with the Zen. Talk, walk me through where you, where you feel like those might fit and sort of the pluses and minuses of, of those techniques. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think there's a lot of excitement now, of course, particularly, again, with a couple of strategics, uh, Alcon and, and, as you mentioned, Allergan, now getting into this space because, I mean, that really kind of really exponentially increases the, you know, the size of, uh, of, the, of, the, of, these, of the interest. So a couple of things on this, on this point here. So, you know, MIGs, we talk, I like talking about MIGs as these procedures that, of course, are safe. They're ad internal delivered typically, um, and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're quite efficient procedures to do. Internal MIGs, meaning internal drains procedures that are like eye stent, which are canal-based, and now side-pass, which are supracordial-based, are internal drains procedures. So I call them internal MIGs. Okay. And procedures like the Zen, which I still consider MIGs because they're, it's ab-internal, it has a lot of, it has some safety value compared to uh, you know other procedures, but this externally deli- external drainage 
that's kind of more sort of a mixed plus I call it, where you get plus you get you get additional IOP lowering, but it does come at some cost in terms of creating a bleb and some extra maintenance required postoperatively and some additional risk you take by creating an external bleb. So th this does again maybe complicate things a little bit, but it does help me at least to kind of differentiate the internal mix devices from mix plus. Right. The internal mix supercoil devices is a new is a new kit on the block. You know, it'll, it'll the FDA studies. You know, it, you know the be, being submitted and reviewed. And this procedure takes potential advantage of the supercoil space. Um, so far, the work that's been done with the sidepass has been predominantly done with FACO. And when we look at the data that's come out from, for example, the COMPASS trial, which was presented recently at ASCRS and has been submitted for publication, a big 500 patient study, uh, washing out patients, you know, before uh, treatment and after treatment as well, you know, did find a pretty good delta between those that had FACO plus sidepass versus FACO alone. Now, it's still not to the level of a trabeculectomy or a bleb forming procedure externally. So I will caution those, uh, you know, to, on that point. But it does seem to have, you know, good safety like mixed procedures do. And we'll have to see again where it fits in versus the eye standard versus canal-based procedures. I think we still don't know. We don't have any good head test studies to compare. And my feeling is we're probably going to find, you know, that the supercoidal space will have a niche for certain patients and the canal will have a certain niche for other patients. And that may be differentiated based on safety, based on technical ease of delivery, uh, based on number of devices that may have to be used, and efficacy, of course. So I think we're still not quite there to know, but I will say I think with sidepass, I think we're not going to get necessarily to the level of a trap. Now, that being said, we are doing some exciting work looking at augmenting supercoidal procedures with, for example, viscal expansion. So we're injecting viscoelastic in the supercoidal space to enhance the space around the implant, at least for the first few weeks of the important post-operative healing period. And that seems to create a bigger lake in the supercoidal space long-term, which may actually further drive pressures lower to hit targets that are more in the trap population. So we're pretty excited about that. Wow. We're still early on that. I'm actually involved in that. But that may actually help us to push uh, you know, uh, these pressures lower. One thing, let's not forget about traps. If we didn't have mitomycin and, we didn't, and or didn't have 5-FU, we would not be able to hit pressures of 8 to 10 consistently. Right. Right. I mean, we would be getting pressures in the mid teens to high teens. Right. Which is where we're getting actually with mix. So we have a little bit of traps do have an advantage and we have the anti metabolite. Right. For these mixed procedures, we don't have the anti metabolite. We're not comfortable, of course, using mitomycin in the eye, of course. Right. And I think time will tell. We're going to be able to hopefully use adjunctive wound healing modulation to help us drive pressures lower. We're not there yet. Visco expansion may help us with that. So for now, at least, if we want to get to trap levels, a pressure lowering with certain patients need them, like you said, then we're going subcons. And that means the Zen delivered ab internal allows us to create a bleb for pressures and, and, and reductions, which are getting close to traps. We, we need more data on this one. And I think that's where we have that niche that's basically been developed for that patient population. We're also finding because of the ease of delivery and the safety that, that surgeons are willing to use Zen earlier too, mind you. So, this is going to be an interesting discussion about where Zen fits with compared to some of the other options because Zen uh, may be able to be used earlier because, of course, we are happy happier with the safety profile. That's still to be determined. But for all intents and purposes, for now at least, you know, it's a procedure that is certainly in the wheelhouse of a glaucoma surgeon. There are going to be some cataract surgeons who are comfortable managing blebs who may venture into this area initially as well. And others may be more interested as time goes on and they realize and they see that these blebs are easier to manage than trap blebs. That will have to again have to be shown shown first and foremost, of right. course, as well. Right. And then the other the other nuclear on the block is in focus, which is becoming perhaps the most potent pressure lowering uh, new glaucoma procedure 
that I think really has a real chance to replace TRABS, um, but it's a procedure that does require us to uh, do, a, do an ab external approach, meaning we open up the conge and place the device. So, and again, we, we're currently doing studies, very pleased with the results of that, that procedure as well in terms of pressure lowering. And again, that's again in the wheelhouse of, of a glaucoma surgeon. Uh, so really, TRAB is really becoming, in my opinion, again, we can debate this, is becoming uh, less and less commonly performed in our practice because we have better options to do procedures that approach TRABs or alternatives to TRABs or pre-TRABs, uh, whichever way we go. One point I want to make, Gary, is, is, is the pivot point for me is whether or not the patient is going for cataract. Right. Because if they're going for cataract surgery, then I really try to go internal, meaning canal-based or supracortical procedures, as opposed to doing tra TRABs or blebs if we can avoid it because you know, we know that creating blebs and doing phaco sometimes work against each other, right? right. Phaco create inflammation. Yep. Sometimes blebs are hard to manage. But yet with, with, with the canal-based procedures or supercurrent procedures, it seems to be a good synergy with phaco. So often what I'll do is I'll, I'll, if I do a patient likely needs to have a, a bleb, I'll still go ahead and do phaco plus MIGS, internal MIGS. And I'll tell a patient, listen, we may have to go to a procedure that's subconscious-based later on, but I'll separate it up by a few months. Because I think if I have to go bleb, I'm going to be better off waiting a few months, blood aqueous barrier stabilized, and then go subconj. But there's a good chance that I may not even have to go there if my phaco mix works well enough and, and we may be able to be, be okay with it. So that's kind of where I am at, at now. So one of the pivot points, again, is phaco or no. Uh, if it's standalone, though, I have to say, if standalone procedures, um, when we have to go to, to do a standalone procedure, I'm usually going subconj because so far the canal procedures and the supercortical procedures are not enough typically to treat a patient who's progressing that needs a standalone procedure to get low enough. That makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, you're already going to be in there. You might as well do what you can to help the patient. And you're not burning the bridge of potentially doing a, a conjunctival-based uh, procedure. So it's really kind of a, hey, let's do what we can do. Let's manage this the best we can. Hopefully we can save you from having another surgery. And, you know, patients really, I think, are very appreciative when you can offer something like that. Um, a good friend of mine, John Kitchens, who you may know, a great retina surgeon here in Lexington, Kentucky as well, you know, he and I perform a lot of um, surgery in, in tandem where I'll do cataract surgery and then he'll go ahead and do um, whatever uh, vitreoretinal retinal surgery needs to be done. And, you know, patients really um, are appreciative of the fact that they can have both their cataract and their retinal procedure done <clears throat> at the same time. And so I feel like that's probably a very similar situation. Well, Ike, thank you so much. I know you're busy and you've got other, other um, things to attend to, but thank you for, so, you know, for taking some time tonight, um, talking to us about MIGS, giving us a little bit of breakdown of where they fit into your practice, how you look at the landscape, and how you sort of decide and decipher which, which procedure might be uh, working best for which patient population. And uh, as always, look forward to seeing you maybe at one of the next meetings. Well, thanks, Gary. I hope that was helpful. I, I think I think glaucoma is really going under renaissance. Interventional glaucoma is how I like, like, how I like to say it. Whether it's mixed devices or drug delivery, uh, diagnostics, I mean, we're really undergoing renaissance. And it's, again, it's a pleasure to be able to work with, with a team of folks, including yourself, to kind of help to understand these better. So thank you for having me here. And, and again, I wish everyone luck in kind of helping our patients to kind of get better outcomes. Thanks a lot, Ike. Take care. Multiple innovations for MIGS have come to market and a number continue to move through the pipeline. One of the surgeons who has contributed his ideas and insights to the process is Dr. John Birdall. I had the chance to catch up with John to hear a little bit more about his experience and what excites him most about these new procedures.
Today we have John Berdahl back with us for another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And John, I wanted to just say thank you for taking another bit of your time to give us some perspective on, on MIGS. Uh, this is a space that has really been exploding, um, at least in terms of the devices that are in development. And I want to kind of get your take on where you see MIGS right now, um, where you see MIGS going in the future, and maybe um, perhaps which patients might benefit from which strategy or which type of technology. So maybe we'll just start off by, uh, by you giving us a little bit of background on your experience with iStent. I know that's something that you uh, really were early on with. Um, and then from there, we'll go on uh, maybe to some of the other things that have come out and things that are coming out in the future. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Gary. And uh, great job with Off the Grid. I love it and love the things that I learned from it. And, you know, so uh, MIGS, which uh, stands for Microinvasive Glaucoma Surgery or Minimally Invasive Glaucoma Surgery, either one, um, is, a, is a new category. And it's made a real difference in how we take care of patients. And for me, it is... Um, the thing that I'm most excited about that's happened over the last, you know, uh, five years or since I've been in my career, uh, it fills in a gap that nothing else really fills in that well. And so uh, just real quick, my experience with it is that um, when the uh, eye stent was approved, we started using that right away. Previous to that, I was in the uh, generation two uh, Glaucos eye stent trial, what they're calling eye stent inject. That's kind of two little rivets that get put into the trabecular meshwork. Um, and then uh, I'm in a superchoroidal stent right now, a stent study right now, and I was in the Aquasis study, and so I've got experience with that, uh, that as well. And it's exciting to see that things are going to be evolving into potentially combined MIGS plus drug delivery. Um, you know, in the meantime, with iStent kind of being really the first MIGS implantable device that uh, that's out there, uh, there's kind of some uh, innovation on ideas that we've long thought maybe weren't going to work. And th so things like the Kahook dual blade, which is, uh, you know, a trabecular meshwork excision and some of the other trabecular meshwork procedures that are out there. So it is really nice to not have to go from medications to trabeculectomy. And there, there was a big space to fill and, and these devices fill it well. So let's let's kind of walk stepwise through um, your thinking um, when you're seeing a cataract patient. So someone has cataract a cataract and they're they're coming in. It's time for surgery, and you know maybe they're in that mild to moderate category. So they're on one or two meds. You know maybe actually fairly well controlled. Maybe they've had SLT, and you know you now have the one opportunity of this patient's lifetime perhaps to do something. Um, even though it's maybe invasive, it's minimally invasive. Walk me through your conversation with someone about you know having not only cataract surgery, but in this case, um, either doing uh, the the hook dual blade technology where you're doing you're excising a strip of TM, or uh, eye stent, or maybe perhaps combining those for patients who have a little bit you know maybe they're on two or three or more meds. So, you know, the kind of mild to moderate plus cataract, that's, you know, kind of the bread and butter and, and more or less kind of slam dunk patient, at least for me in terms of thinking on what's the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to take their cataract out and uh, do a MIGS procedure like an eye stent or maybe a KDB, and, um, which stands for Kahook Dual Blade. 
Um, so let me just walk you through the conversation I have with the patient. It goes something like this. Hey, you've got a cataract, and if we take your cataract out, we're going to make you see a, a lot better. Um, you've also got glaucoma, and while we're in there doing your cataract surgery, we can put a little device in to help protect you from your glaucoma, uh, lower your IOP, hopefully, and, and hopefully even get you off of medication. And so that's what I think that you know we really should do for you. And, you know, when we do cataract surgery, you've got options for your vision afterwards. So if you hope to wear glasses, no problem. We'll take a standard approach. If you hope to not have to wear glasses for distance uh, much, we may have an option uh, for that. And if you're hoping to not have to wear glasses for distance and up close, we've got an option for that. Now, those last two things cost extra, and we talk about those prices. So to me, um, talking about if you've got mild glaucoma and you've got a cataract, for me, it it really is um, a foregone conclusion that that a MIGS device makes sense because they're just as safe as the cataract surgery, and they're only going to really help you. And John, one of the reasons I like uh, talking to you about this is, you know, there are some guys who walk, who who sort of, uh, you know, talk the talk, and there are guys who walk the walk. And I, I put you in in that in both of those categories. So you're out there talking about a lot of devices, but. You're a busy practitioner. You're a busy surgeon. You're a guy who's really doing things. And I know you wouldn't waste your time and your effort or patient's time and, and effort um, doing things that aren't going to be efficacious. So when you're doing these procedures, I mean, just in your experience, what kind of results are you getting? I mean, that's, that's the, the biggest question I have is, are we doing this uh, because it's approved and maybe, you know, it might help? Uh, because honestly, I was not overwhelmed by the data from the FDA study. But what I'm hearing from a lot of people is they're actually getting way better results than they got in the FDA study. And maybe that's because people are actually getting better at placing the eye stent. So walk me through kind of what your experience has been, real world results. I mean, do most patients get off at least one drop if you, if you put them on an eye stent or if you give an eye stent? Yeah, really good question, Gary. You know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, people would call this minimally effective glaucoma surgery, and, and that's really clever, but I think it's inaccurate. And we've got the largest um, series uh, published, and we're submitting it for publication in peer-reviewed journal, but we had it at, we published it at ASCRS, 360 patients um, with up to two years follow-up time. And so a really large data series in combination with cataract surgery, one stent, and what we found is that the average IOP lowering was about four millimeters of mercury. That's consistent with what was in other trials. Um, and average IOP reduction or average medication reduction was roughly 50%. So, um, so that's interesting and that's efficacious. And people would say, well, maybe it's just the cataract. You know, cataract lowers IOP too, but we also studied it in pseudofakes. So you had a comment earlier on that. It's their one chance to get MIGs. It's actually not. I think that the companies have done themselves a disservice by saying you can't do it in pseudofacic patients. That's incorrect. You can. We're allowed to do things off-label. It just may or may not get reimbursed. But remember, reimbursement isn't tied to labeling. Um, it, it, things that are on-label may not get reimbursement, and things that are off-label may. And we've had good luck in our practice getting it reimbursed, but ultimately our job as doctors is to do what's in the best interest of the patient. Right. So going back to um, going back to the data, so we uh, in our pseudophagic data we actually showed uh, a little more IOP drop, uh, 
a little north of four, like 4.2 or something like that in our pseudophagic data compared to our cataract plus um, eye stent data. Why would we see that? And the answer is because the preoperative IOPs were higher in the pseudophagic group than they were the cataract group. So going to the cataract group, preoperative IOPs were 19. Postoperative average IOP was 15. 15 is pretty helpful pretty nice place to be yeah but when we broke it out based on preoperative IOP what we found was that if people were um, 17 or under we would get an average IOP drop of about one and a half millimeters of mercury if they were 17 to 21 where most people were we'd get about four millimeters of mercury 21 to 26 we'd get about eight to nine millimeters of mercury and greater than 27, we got an average IOP drop of 14 millimeters of mercury. Wow. And, and right. And we were surprised too. But this is really similar to Ray Brown's data, um, almost, almost identical to what Ray Brown looked at. And so the, the point there is, is that when you need a MIGS procedure, the more you need it, the better it works. So it's actually a graduated – you're actually getting a graduated response um, where higher pressure gives you a, a higher reduction. That's right, and and that makes sense because it's probably the, you know, resistance to outflow in that situation is probably across the trabecular meshwork. Right. So well, so you're going to force fluid through that little hole uh, better. Well, yeah, and so. that that brings up an interesting point. So if that's the if that's the place where we say okay, that's that's really the bottleneck, so to speak. You know, that actually gives me a lot of reasons to maybe try the Kahook dual blade. So yeah. tell me a little bit about that. Basically, you're, you're de-roofing the trabecular meshwork. Is that correct? Yeah, right. So, um, you know, Malik Kahook is a, a friend and a, one of the most inventive guys that I know. You're up there too, Gary. But Malik, boy, he, uh, he has ideas and he executes on them. And yeah. he has this nifty little idea that says, you know what, if we take the unroof the trabecular meshwork, maybe uh, we can lower IOP. And one of the advantages that Malik has at the University of Colorado is that he studies that in, right. in a cadet lab and, and can, you know, fashion and try some of these things. And so, you know, we all were taught that goniotomy was a surgery for kids. Right. <laughs> Congenital glaucoma. Right. 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 And no thank you. Um, God bless the people that take care of that. They're, they already have a foot in heaven. And... Um, and so, you know, but what he did is he challenged the existing thinking and the traditional dogma and the results from tech trabectome haven't been, you know, that compelling. And, and he said, well, maybe it's because that's going to induce some scarring and it's going to leave these leaflets of uh, trabecular meshwork that could cover the ostea of the collector channels. Right. And so his design and why it's a dual blade is that it's got a, think of it like a wedge with a blade on each side of that wedge. And so it lifts the trabecular meshwork off and instead of incising it, it excises it and allows access to the trabecular meshwork channels. And I've used it and it works. <clears throat> and and so I think that it's a, a really nice um, complement uh, to eye stent or an alternative to eye stent in, in a situation. And, um, you know, particularly if you may be worried about a reimbursement situation in a pseudophagic state with something like an eye stent, I think that it plays a meaningful role and a great tool in our toolkit to complement the other MIGS devices that are out there. Yeah, so I think that, to be honest, that's, that's one of those devices that you, you kind of think, wow, that's so simple. Why didn't someone think of that sooner? But those are the really good ideas 
the ones that are simple, fairly easy to uh, implement. And I think about this like the old Gillette uh, lift and cut commercial. You know, you're basically just lifting and cutting it out. And when you don't have the tissue that's there, it can't fibrose and, like you said, cause some um, scarring or um, blockage of the collector channels. So I think that makes all the sense in the world. And, and I, I would agree with you. Uh, Malik is just one of those guys who's on, on the next level and someone who's doing a great job and, and all sorts of things. So I think that's a technology we all need to keep our eyes on. Um, so beyond that, you know, it looks like there's some other really, you know, shining stars coming down the pipe. Um, we've got the, uh, the Transcend Psypass, which Alcon has recently acquired. We also have the Aquasis Zen, which Allergan has acquired. You know, give me a little bit of your, uh, you know, your feelings on these technologies. Are these for the average uh, cataract patient or uh, with glaucoma? Or in, in my mind, maybe these are for patients with more of a um, moderate to severe uh, glaucoma who need a, a higher pressure reduction. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so my first thought is that I love Yogi Berra, who said, predicting the future is easy and being right is hard. So <laughs> I'll give you my prediction, um, but we'll see We'll see if I'm right. Um, I, I kind of think that there's a lot of things here at play, and I've done a lot of suprachoroidal stents as part of studies, and, and they are a very doable procedure, and I think that it's well within the realm of a comprehensive cataract surgeon. I think that the word suprachoroidal scares us all. Yeah. Um, I have because you know it doesn't conjure up good feelings in our in our heart. Um, but but it, it's a it's a really a straightforward procedure to do. But my prediction is is that folks will feel more comfortable in the trabecular meshwork than they are in the suprachoroidal space. And as long as um, trabecular meshwork procedures like I stent KDB I stent inject are um, are available and and as easy to do, if not easier, surgeons will probably gravitate there um, unless there's really superior efficacy that is shown by a suprachoroidal stent. So my prediction would be that the majority of first-line MIGS procedures are still going to be at the trabecular meshwork and that suprachoroidal um, devices will be an adjunct to them. And so maybe um, you don't, uh, don't, they've got a more severe glaucoma, so at the time of cataract surgery, you're going to put in a trabecular stent and a suprachoroidal stent, or you did a trabecular stent and a cataract surgery and you didn't get what you were hoping for, so you come back and put in a suprachoroidal stent. I got you. Almost like a line, like a secondary phase for getting your target. Yeah, that's, that's my prediction that that'll be most of the market for that, but, um, but I could be wrong. It could be that people say, no, this is easier to do or it lowers eye pressure uh, more consistently, but, but my prediction is that it'll be more of a step up in therapy. Got you. And then would you say that the same thing is true with the Aquasis Zen, that that may be even the next phase beyond the suprachoroidal devices? You know, that's kind of what I think. Um, uh, you know, one of the nice things about it is, is you don't necessarily have to be able to do gonio um, to do it. You can do it without gonio and it's probably going to get the pressures the lowest uh, of all of them. And so as long as the, the safety's there, I think that it has a real opportunity. Um, I think that it'll, I really do believe that tubes and traps are, are dying and, um, and I hope that they're dying. <laughs> they need to die. Please let them die. <laughs> Please kill them. Yes. <laughs> and so, uh, so I think that the Aquasis really is the, 
the one that's going to hopefully put the, the... The nail in the coffin? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that it can, uh, I think that it really can lower pressure very effectively. And, and so that's what how I see that role playing. And so all of these will be on a spectrum. The nice thing is they're all combinable. Right. So, so if, you know what, the trabecular meshwork stent didn't do it, add a supracroidal stent. If that still didn't do it, add a subconjunctival stent like the Zen device. Right. And... And so we're not giving up real estate and going down a road we can't retreat from. Right. Well, you know, this is uh, this is an area that I've that I have been uh, considering diving into. Um, you know, anytime you're in a practice with a lot of partners and a lot of other stakeholders, you kind of have to make sure that you're you're taking your time and, and not diving in too soon. But uh, this is a technology uh, that I really feel like is something that has legs. And at first I wasn't really sure, you know, where, where's this going? Is it really something that we can do, but maybe it's not effective. But honestly, the more I talk to guys like you and, and Bill Wiley and some other folks, um, <clears throat> I'm really encouraged by the efficacy that these procedures are promising and what they're really delivering on. So Gary, I, I want to just challenge you and, and other surgeons on that just a little bit. Um, I would say, you know, I believe that we're called to do the right thing for the patients, provide them with their options. And if you see a patient that has cataracts and is on a glaucoma medication, if you and you have somebody else in your practice that, you know, is kind of your glaucoma person or whatever, and you don't want to step on their shoes, um, I, I would I would ask the, you know, you or surgeons to say, um, am I offering them to go and get the opinion about a MIGS? Or am I just going to do their cataract surgery anyway and keep them on their drops? Because, and, and I don't want to be soapboxy here at all, but, um, but I do think that we're doing the best thing for them by giving them those options. So if you say, hey, you know what, MIGS isn't for me, that's cool. But if you're evaluating somebody that's on cataract and a medication, um, I, I'd really challenge you to say then I need to get them to somebody that will at least discuss it with them so they get their full cadre of options. I got you. I think that's uh, that's where things are definitely heading. And, um, you know, we, we need to be the guys um, who are, are pushing these uh, these technologies forward. It's not always easy being on that uh, cutting edge and being on the leading edge, uh, but I feel like we're really getting to the point where this is, uh, this is something that is, uh, like I said, it really has legs and is uh, showing uh, that it can stand on its own two feet. So... John, thank you so much for giving us your perspective. You're, you, I really always love talking to you, and you've given me lots of good advice on other things in the past. And uh, thanks for taking some leadership in this area. It's really important. You bet, Gary. It's always a privilege, and, and thanks so much for your friendship and including me. Absolutely. Take care. So, friends and colleagues, I think this shows what can happen when we evaluate and reevaluate our treatment approaches. Let's continue to consider new ways of helping our patients, and then let's talk about it. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thanks for listening. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is supported by Elevro from Alcon.